Whether you're an entrepreneur, event planner, political organizer, video producer, cattle farmer, fashion designer, architect, real estate agent, or magazine editor, Airtable can help you create your way. Learn more and get a special offer for the Founders Project listeners at Airtable.com slash Founders Project. Welcome to Inc.'s The Founders Project with Alexa Von Tobel. I'm Alexa, the founder of LearnBest, author of New York Times bestselling book, Financially Fearless, and second book, Financially Forward. I'm also the founder and managing partner of Inspired Capital, a venture firm focused on the entrepreneurs of the future. Each week, we sit down with a top founder to share their story of guts, inspiration, and drive. This week, we're going to interview the legendary Max Levchin, founder and CEO of Affirm, a company giving consumers a new way to buy with instant point-of-sale loans. Max is known not only for Affirm, which has raised $800 million since its founding in 2012, but also as a co-founder of PayPal, which he started in 1998. Over his career, Max has launched numerous companies himself, invested in even more, and has spent undoubtedly most of his time in his career helping improve the way people spend. Welcome, Max. We're thrilled to have you. Thank you for having me. Max, uh, so let's just start from the beginning. First things first, will you help us understand your vision for a firm, which has obviously done such great things for consumers? Where did you get the idea from? What was the aha moment? Uh, I think one of the truths of entrepreneurship is that there's never one aha moment. It's always a journey and you eventually dress it up into a simple founding myth. But I'm not a fan of those because you inevitably miss an important detail of how the idea really came together when you just sort of try to boil it down to one or two sentences. The original idea was actually born of a conversation I had with one of my earliest PayPal co-conspirator, this guy Nathan, who he and I worked on risk projects and uh, problems together at PayPal very closely. One of our sort of perennial conversations was around how the venerable FICO score just really isn't fit for the modern world. There are people like me who came to the US as sort of semi-adults, had no history, and suddenly had to borrow money. Uh, people that are now sort of the millennial and Gen Z generation who just choose not to borrow money in any meaningful way until they kind of have to in their sort of mid-20s, and so their history is basically missing. And so FICO score really outlived its usefulness. That was our conclusion. We set out to build kind of an alternative we constructed something that we thought would be an interesting experiment to run and went around asking people who lent money professionally, all the various startups in the space, and including banks, actually, not, not startups at all, would you use our score? And the answer came back very clearly. If you're so sure that your score is better than the what everybody else uses, you should just lend your own money and prove it to yourself and everybody else that you know what you're doing. So nothing like telling an entrepreneur, this will never work out, go risk your own cash. And uh, so we did. And so the company was really born from the study. Well, you know what, we're, we're going to prove it to you that we can build a better score. Within that sort of realm, we started asking this question, well, okay, so this involved two, two more guys, but all four of us had basically computer science degrees. And so none of us had much background in marketing. As a result, we were looking for a place to try our score where we wouldn't have to learn how to market these products to consumers. At which point I recalled this whole sort of a genre of credit cards that are offered to consumers at the point of sale. You go to a department store, there's always someone there with an application you can fill out and typically has things like, hey, it's, you know, 10% off right now and there's a 0% line of credit. So, you know, what's not to like sign up here and we'll fax it to our credit department and wait for, for the approval. But if you get declined, you're, you're getting declined in front of everybody else. And so, uh, so we thought, oh, that, that's kind of an interesting spot. If, if this is actually a thing, surely our 
So of course, our score was real time, it was instant approval or decline, and it was done in this privacy of your own phone. So the embarrassment factor was zero. If you didn't get approved, you would uh, we, we would tell you very, very quietly. And so that, that was the original premise. So up until that point, it was all kind of like, hey, what an interesting project. We're going to go and see if people want to borrow money at the point of sale, an alternative to a credit card that's issued there. As I dug into it, I realized that the credit cards that are issued at the point of sale are basically the devil themselves. Like these are not just marginally bad products. These are truly horrific things. Not all of them. There, there are some exceptions. So I, I don't want to sort of paint the entire industry with a bad brush, but Normally, when you see a 0% credit card, this is just, you know, you're, you're being served up a lot of goods because if you are late by a day or a dollar short. It goes up, it gets worse. Exactly. It goes up to an obscene number. But the, the real sort of a trick is what's called uh, deferred interest with uh, recapture. Deferred interest was clawback where they don't just pipe the um, interest rate to like 30%. It goes back to the time of purchase and compounds. And so you can find yourself thinking, I have this uh, 0% credit card, amazing, three years in, you miss a payment, and that very first transaction and everything you've done since, suddenly it's as if it's been compounding. And so I sort of, as I, the more I dug in, the more I realized it, it's just all kinds of societally bad. For example, most people that get tripped up by this thing, the, the, the industry term for this is flip up. So most flip ups happen to people in the lower credit tranches. And of course, people who are actually very good managing their money and don't really need this product end up being on time, so they never pay any interest. So this is fundamentally basically people with poor credit subsidizing loans for those with excellent credit. So it's a wealth redistribution device, it's deceptive, it's generally just yucky, and you can end up paying twice as much money or three times as much money. And it's very widely out there. There's plenty of companies that, that offer this thing. And so I sort of got religion around, you know what, I'm not just gonna go build a better score, I'm actually going to make it this company's mission to clean up financial products and instead of having these kind of amoral attitudes towards well you, need, you want to borrow some money here it is let's make a bet i think you won't be on time i think you'll screw up and that's what i'm going to make money let's actually change the rules of the game where we're always going to be on the side of the customer and so that led to a lot of design decisions in the product itself where we certainly don't do anything that i just described this defer interest with clawback madness is is firmly outside of what we would ever consider doing, but we took it further. We decided that we wouldn't charge late fees because that aligns us with the customer. If they're late, it's our job to remind them not to make money on the fact that they maybe had a something bad happen in their life or that whatever it is that's causing them not to be able to pay on time. So that, that's sort of a very fast romp, but it was back to, back to the beginning of that story. It wasn't an overnight thing. It took about a year to formulate what this company would look like and what it stood for. But the good news is that because we took our time designing what the mission really is, we've never had to change it. So the, the mission statement, the moral values that we live by, everything that sort of this company stands on has been the same from day one, which is really gratifying. Incredibly gratifying, I can imagine. So Max, when you think about that, and also as a certified financial planner and somebody who believes deeply in um, helping income inequality in America and just all of the problems that I think are actually unfortunately also moving in the wrong direction and you know companies like a firm are actually helping solve them. When did you realize that what you had set up over that year was really working? When did you recognize, okay, this isn't just an incredibly important thing that we can go out and fix and create transparency and get rid of predatory lending, but when did you realize, wow, this is a very big business that we can go build? There were about three different moments, three different things that sort of clued me into like this really matters. So we spent a bunch of time trying to explain 
why this is something that merchants should care about. So for this to work, merchants have to decide, hey, we're going to offer this right alongside that credit card box on our checkout page and educate consumers with very valuable real estate what this affirm thing is all about and who are these people and no, it's not a scam. And so th this was a quite a big initial sales hurdle to go through. And eventually I talked to a few friends of mine who run successful online uh, shops basically to, to give us a shot. As this sort of started very, very slowly, it, it took a long time. It took, took over a year after we sort of seen the light of what we're doing, another year before we really made our first kind of meaningful transaction happen. As we started seeing those first transactions, I started getting calls from my friends, CEOs of these retail brands, telling me, you won't believe this, but I'm seeing 20 to 30% more sales that are coming through a firm. Like, are you sure this is not fraud? Are you sure this is not you know, just people that shouldn't be borrowing money. Borrowing money is like, no, no, we're actually quite conservative. Our credit score is brand new, but it isn't sort of a way for people to, you know, borrow money willy-nilly. In fact, it's all built around this idea that if you can't pay us back, it is our responsibility to tell you, we're so sorry, but we can't lend you money because we make nothing on late fees if we don't charge them. We make nothing on, there's no hidden fees. There's, there's, there's no way for us to make money except for you to pay us back. And so as a result, actually quite conservative. So as our merchant friends started telling us, wow, this thing is actually driving a lot of volume, we started digging into this question, well, why? And so one part of it was there were a lot of people who were, that we surveyed essentially said, well, this seems easier to understand than credit cards. When I put this thing on my plastic, I don't know when I'm gonna be out of debt. This thing tells me you know, six months in and then the balance is zero and that's it. There's nothing else afterwards. And the, this notion of financial control that consumers get out of it was kind of the aha moment on one side, while our earliest merchants telling us, wow, people really value control well over a lot of other things. By typing in a bunch of information to get approved for a loan is presumably a little more, bit more work than typing in credit card numbers, and yet they're doing this because they want to be in less debt, less revolving debt. And th that was really two really big moments, and then Sort of within that, I keep on doing this now, but I certainly in the beginning I did it obsessively. I would listen to phone calls from people calling our you know, tiny little homebrewed uh, customer service center and saying, "Hey, you know, here's what's going on," or us calling them and saying, "Please pay on time." And there's a moment where this woman called and said, "Hey, I can't pay. You know, I, I know you just sent me a text saying I'm late. I'm late. You know, something happened." And our customer service rep said, "Okay, well." You know, I, we hope you can become, you can get current. And obviously, if you're in full default, it'll eventually reflect poorly on your ability to transact with a firm again. You won't be able to do that. And she said, well, I, I get it, I get it. What's the late fee? And the rep said, no, there's no late fee. It's just, you know, please get current, you know, as soon as you can. And it was this, like, who's on first, who's on second moment where the woman couldn't believe that we wouldn't take advantage of the fact that, and I have no idea whether it was, you know, dog ate her homework or she truly wasn't some sort of a personal uh, moment where she, could, she couldn't afford it. But whatever it was, she just exploded with like, I have to tell my friends about this, this is amazing. Like no one's ever told me there are no late fees. And so that's sort of a tiny little moment of consumer, oh my God, there's a financial services company that isn't trying to take advantage of me, isn't trying to screw me when I'm down, was like, oh, okay, so clearly merchants benefit, consumers actually value control. And in a moment where we could have made somebody who hates us because we took advantage of them, we turn them into a basically a brand advocate. And so that was probably, you know, we, we should do a lot more of this. this. This is going to be big. I love that. And um, wow, those moments where you can hear a consumer say, 
you're not going to make my already extremely challenging life worse is not only really gratifying, but it's incredibly exciting that you were able to build an incredibly big business out of this. So let's fast forward. That was 2013, 2014. You've now raised $800 million. Give us a sense of how you think about the future of a firm and kind of where it's headed and and what gets you excited about that. A lot of different things. Definitely. Well, the good news and bad news about financial services in this country is that a lot of it deserves uh, a fresh look. Let's let's keep it. The uh, deeper you get into the financial journey, the bigger the problem you realize it is, and the more work that people like you and I have to do. For sure. (laughs) I think one of sort of my favorite. I'll answer a question in a second as to sort of where we're we're actually going. One of the things that sort of anytime I have a chance to be on the mic, I I try to uh, I try to remind everybody the business model for credit cards and payday loans is the same. Like you're basically allowed to refinance your own debt in perpetuity. This whole notion of revolving credit where here's a balance every night, every week, every month, whatever the compounding period is, just going to charge a little bit more interest and we're going to attach it to the principal and it's going to grow. And if the rate's low, the exponential curve looks kind of flat in the beginning, but eventually it catches up. The interest rate is high. It catches up very quickly, but it's the same for credit cards and payday loans. And, you know, we malign the latter and we accept the former. But fundamentally, this idea of humans are really bad at estimating exponential growth applies to both exactly the same. We, we look at a curve and say, well, it looks like a line, so it must be a line. But reality is, it looks like an exponent. You just have to look far enough out. And so a big part of how we think of a firm is trying to bring simplicity. Transparency is really important. Honesty is very important. We really want to make sure we're on the side of the consumer. But a huge way we're thinking about how to map our product development uh, roadmap is really just answering this question over and over again. How can we simplify a financial decision, a financial product, a financial situation? How can we unpack these complicated decisions and protect people from having to deal with the effects of this exponential growth that they, they did not anticipate and sort of in, in ending, ending up in, in bad debt and things like that? And so within that, obviously, we sort of carved out this really nice space for ourselves in point of sale lending where, by the way, just you know, for, for those uh, keeping score at home, our particular type of loan is simple interest. So the interest does not go into the principal. So you, know, you obviously pay interest if there's interest. About a third of our loans are actually 0%, so consumers pay no interest at all. The merchants subsidize it. But for those that do have interest attached to them, it's a simple interest loan. So you, you can easily calculate it. It's a linear function. But from there, you can kind of imagine there's a bunch of industries where a bunch of segments in retail we, we don't play yet at all. We started out really focused on homewares and sort of home furnishings. At this point, we play in everything from auto parts to recreational uh, workout equipment, sports stuff. Uh, We are quite active in fashion. We are looking at other really expensive things that you can sort of imagine where people kind of go, wow, I thought I could afford it and now I need to figure out how to pay for it. So those are all very obvious places. The more interesting thing for us to do then is to say, well, now that we've made these things simpler for you, what else can we do? So one thing that we sort of, this point, I think I maybe personally inadvertently leaked this out, but it's sort of a semi-public knowledge. We have been working on kind of a firm answer to what a savings account looks like, and so we're, we're hoping to bring that to market sometime soon. We have aspirations to, and as, as I hinted, I guess, have our answer to what a line of credit needs to look like. So this idea of revolving debt, you know, it's not quite as evil in my mind as deferred interest, which truly is just a terrible thing. But uh, I think in general, you can do much better than kind of a basic vanilla revolving credit account. So we're, we're trying to uh, think through that. 
We are very focused on making sure that U.S. is not the only geography where we play. And so uh, that, that's another thing that's, that's on that our horizon. That's going to be my next question. That's great. Yeah, it, it's a, it, I think it's applicable everywhere. It, there, there's so much to do in the U.S. It's tempting to just kind of do more and more here. But on the flip side, a lot of our merchant partners are international. And having brought them 30% more volume, 40% more volume, in some cases over 50% more sales, they said, well, that's great, but how about... Europe, how about Latin America? And so, uh, yep. so that, that's another thing that we're, we're working on. Think of us as, as your uh, old singing, old dancing financial services provider. The only fuel this rocket needs is more engineers and, and all the people that make, make the rest of the, of the products uh, happen. So it's a, it's a matter of how many things can we build concurrently. I love that. So one thing I want to just kind of pivot to, so you've spent so much time, obviously, at PayPal and um, now at Affirm, just really understanding our psyches with money. And to your point, a big aha moment was control. Your other aha moment really was around trust, right? Which is like, when I'm down, you're, you're not going to like try to take more advantage of me. How do you think Americans think about our wallets? Like, what's the pillars in your mind that are constant around money with Americans that you've witnessed? You know, it's actually really different generation to generation. There are completely different attitudes and mores around money as you go from people my mom's age to people my age to people, you know, another generation younger. My mom wasn't born in the U.S., but, you know, we've spent most of our lives here at this point really isn't comfortable with anything but kind of what a big bank with a you know mahogany desks and marble flooring tells her is okay even if it's not all that good for her and the thing that worked in in 19th century where you build these really big buildings and it said your money's safe because we have this big building and the safe it's is made really of marble <laughs> yeah it's it's you know thick thick doors on a safe that's sort of a, the alpha and omega of how she decides whom to trust and I think as you go younger, people have significantly more digital attitudes towards their financial services. One of the most interesting things that I sort of found over the years that I think a lot more people are doing now, but it took a very, very long time. U.S. is still kind of a cash-centric economy. There are a lot of people who see cash as sort of a safety blanket. It's nice to have this, you know, I have dollars, you know, bills in my pocket or bills in my wallet, and that makes me feel safe. I can get out of a sticky situation if I must. If you go to a lot of other parts of the world, people sort of look at this antiquated notion of, you know, fabric-y treads that you, know, you don't really need. I mean, you know, tapping or chipping and pinning is, is what you do there. And so we're a little bit of a laggard country in that sense. The most interesting attitudinal shift that really kind of informed a firm is the fact that millennials, specifically millennial generation, was kind of a pre-teen, teen or so years as 08 or 09 crisis happened. There's a whole host of people, largely not on the coasts. This is kind of the untold story of the early, mid, late 20s group of people in the early 30s at this point who are essentially just inoculated to not believe the things they see on their doorsteps. When they get that direct mail, you pre-approve for a card, their attitude is like almost a visceral desire to shred it, to, to rip it apart yep. because that's just yep. another lie they're being sold and then their parents had to short sell the house or the credit cards had their lines reduced just as the next you know, loan payment came up and they couldn't finance that. And so there's a lot of anger that's buried actually fairly deep inside those people's heads. But that's a lot of where you know I want to live out of my debit card comes from. That's a lot of where I don't want to borrow money comes from. And it's actually, I mean, on the one hand, sort of the neither borrower nor lender be sort of truism that's always been the American way. Maybe you, superficially you think, well, 
that's great. So these people are not going to be in debt. But it turns out that you can't actually not use credits. Like if you want to go to even the least expensive school, let alone a nice school or expensive school, if you need to set up your first apartment, if you need to have a wedding that's not sort of in your own backyard, you end up needing to borrow money. And if you do it responsibly, if you know what you're doing, if you actually have a way of knowing that you, know, you, you will be able to control these decisions and the consequences you can afford, then it's fine. But if you're not used to it, if you avoided it all your early life, you're suddenly deer in the headlights. And so that is one of the most interesting and frankly tragic situations that I think we're witnessing now. There are a lot of people saying, wait a second, I need a car loan and my FICO score is undefined. Okay, but I need a car loan. And so I think that's a lot of this coming to roost now. And there's, there's a bunch of reports now coming up that millennials are suddenly starting to borrow a bunch of money, which everybody thought they wouldn't do. And you know, you can't really not borrow money if you're trying to invest in your own future in a variety of different ways. And so I think that that's probably the most interesting thing that just keeps on coming back in more and more sort of a colorful ways. And with that, we'll be right back after this. During an alpine excursion in 1941, Swiss engineer George de Mastral's dog got covered in burrs from a burdock plant. De Mastral decided to study the burrs under a microscope, and the thousands of tiny hooks on the surface of the burrs inspired him to develop Velcro. This creative breakthrough is brought to you by Airtable. Learn more and get a special offer for the Founders Project listeners at airtable.com slash foundersproject. What do you think that younger generation, do you think they feel like humans need to be involved when it comes to financial advice? How do you think about that? And just where do you think the human requirement for talking to an expert or not is in your head? You know, I think all the trends that we're seeing, there's kind of a bifurcation or a bit of a bimodal distribution. Most of the time, from what we can tell, younger consumers, younger borrowers, younger, younger transactors, are not interested in talking to a human. They would actually prefer to interact with their phone. And by phone, I mean a touchscreen, not not a microphone. And so they, they really want to conduct their transactions while, I don't know, listening to a piece of music or something like that. There, there's no human involved. However, if something goes wrong, they do not want to be on a hold or, and in some cases, I think they might be comfortable with a chatbot, but fundamentally, they want to know that it's going to be okay and someone's going to pick up the phone on the other side and actually talk to them like a real human being. And so there's definitely a very strong concentration of, don't bother me, I know how to click on things, I'll just fill this out on my own. And then suddenly, wait a second, a human better pick up the phone and explain to me why this charge is appearing in my bank account. That's uh, such an interesting point. When we think about the future of, you know, you have a front row seat to um, people's wallets and Americans' wallets and potentially the world's wallets, and you fast forward 10 years, if you had to just give us a prediction or two that you just think is so obvious, 10 years from now, we'll simplify it to the American wallet, what do you think will be happening? I think 10 years from now, it's reasonably safe to say will either be cashless or almost cashless economy. I think we are seeing the demise of cash as a thing, finally. And I remember, a funny factoid, the very first kind of a poster slash, you know, what, what passed for a marketing campaign back in the day, in the late uh, 99, we did at PayPal with our very first designer, Chad Hurley, who of course is much more famous for co-founding YouTube, was a uh, sort of picture of, her, of a dollar bill, basically going into a picture of a Palm Pilot and disappearing in it, kind of getting pixelated. And uh, the slogan underneath said, 
F cash. And you know, of course, it didn't say F, but this attitude of, you know, cash is going away or, you know, computers are going to replace wallets or, you know, smartphones or smart devices are going to replace wallets was with us since 99 or maybe even earlier. But I think it's finally happening. So 10 years from now, hopefully we are not trucking around uh, little shreds of fabric with residue of cocaine on them. But um, I think more interestingly, you will see tighter integration of financial decision making and transactions and how you shop and how you decide about money, how you spend, how you sort of choose what to do with your money will become something that is less abstract. Right now we live in a world of I went to buy this thing and I want it and then we'll figure out if we can afford it and you know we'll deal with that and sort of this divorce of thoughts about financial responsibility and sort of desirability of, of things and I think we're we're seeing a merger of those I think more and more companies you've seen um, I think until very recently a firm was the only company that had no late fees of any kind Apple's um, credit card they partnered with uh, Goldman Sachs Marcus with I believe also has no late fees so I think you're starting to see companies take a stand on what financial responsibility and what corporate responsibility vis-a-vis -vis financial responsibility means. So I think you'll see a lot more of that. I think there'll be products that will disappear, which will be, you know, for example, my favorite nemesis, deferred, deferred interest will, will become a thing of the past, hopefully. The most interesting thing that a firm has no play in right now, but hopefully, uh, you know, we'll either watch it or participate in it, but I think companies like Robinhood and sort of all, all of their various brethren are bringing you know, investment management ability to participate in the markets to everyday people, especially millennials and Gen Z. And I think that's very powerful. If you actually look at the redistribution of wealth in this country, sort of to, to the very first thing that you mentioned, you know, since 08, 09, there's been an enormous run up in a stock market. There's been a tremendous amount of wealth created. And yet that's only worsened the inequality, financial inequality in the country. And so, the fact that these products are now small enough and simple enough to fit into our phones is a great way to bring financial participation in direct investing in entrepreneurship and creation of wealth. You know, the, the thing that, that make the American dream actually work, making it available to uh, people that are just entering the economy is hopefully going to give them a boost. And so I think I'm, I'm very, very excited about that. I can keep speculating about wallets until yeah. I'm home. I'll stop now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I absolutely love hearing your thoughts. I mean, in many ways, in my mind, equity is the new land, private equity especially. And I think the income inequality gap is getting worse. And the fact that financial literacy isn't a thing in every single education system, given that, to your point, there's a reticence and education is actually the thing that I believe helps build trust. But what would you say around uh, the self-driving wallet? Is it an obvious inevitability to you? think yes and I think the platonic ideal of a wallet is this really intelligent you know I, I hate throwing around the term AI because it's so broadly overused at this point but for lack of a better term it's an artificially intelligent wallet that says I understand your needs we're going to figure out the smartest way to pay for it but by the way if you dislike the decision I just made for you you have plenty of time to reverse it or change it or edit it. And so I think fundamentally our relationship with money will be delegated to very smart computer program, but we will be an optional but respected participant in it. So I think we're, we're not ceding control of our money to robots, but we're giving robots a chance to uh, make, help us make the most rational decisions. 
the thing, and I think why I personally always have been um, so excited and interested in money is it is at its simplest math. Your wallet is one big math equation that changes every hour, every day based on your intent, your goals, and what's happening. So for me, it's fascinating because I do believe there's a cure because it is math. Uh, So there's something very beautiful to me about it. Well, the most interesting thing about that point is that we've employed computers to help us with every possible mathematical complexity. If you, you know, from putting the man on the moon to uh, designing bridges, to, you know, every part of life where math was the answer, we sort of said, oh, you know, we have this uh, calculating machine, it's great. And yet with money, we are in a perennial deficit. We've just never really figured out how to give ourselves something that, you know, a crutch to prevent us from making stupid decisions and so on. And so, and of course, it is the simplest type of math. It, it is nothing to do with the uh, orbital speeds and things like that. It is not even complicated. That is precisely what gets me excited. Um, so how did you end up in money? You have literally helped reshape the way that we all think and use money. And it, for me, as somebody who loves this space so much, I'm so grateful. But uh, we just want to know, how'd you get there? What's the root story? Uh, all, all, all these things are accidental. So I'll confuse you even more. So before crypto meant cryptocurrencies, it meant cryptography. And I was on a very firm track to uh, get a PhD in crypto in the original sense. And <laughs> and then I happened to be at the right place at the right time. I graduated University of Illinois where Mosaic, the first graphical browser, was born. The very year the web went from you know, an academic thing to a commercial thing, 97, and everybody was moving west. And I said, this whole PhD idea is going to have to wait. I got in the car and drove to Palo Alto. Of course you did. You got in the car and you drove. I feel like that's such a beautiful mental picture. <laughs> it was a very large truck, but uh, I drove. Uh, car broke down twice during the trip. But uh, I got to Palo Alto and I went around telling all these people, I too want to start an internet company and my specialty is cryptography, so let's secure a bunch of things. And I ran into this guy, Peter Thiel, and he was like, yeah, securing a bunch of things sounds good. And then it turned out there's really no market for securing a bunch of things at that time. These days it's a little bit easier, I think. But uh, while we were trying to figure out, well, what do we do with ourselves now, one of us told the other, hey, let's go secure some money, because that's the one thing that people want to secure all the time. And PayPal was born basically out of this, you know, I, I know how to protect things. Now we're just going to find something to protect. Well, let's protect money. So that, that was the that was the rabbit hole I fell into. And uh, before you know it, I acquired a bunch of uh, what's that uh, quote? Uh, have a certain uh, specialized skill set. And I've tried many other things since PayPal. And it turns out that not only am I no good at anything else, I also love doing this. And so much of what I do is just the fact that I love complexity and simplicity of money and the math and uh, the fact that there's always a human story on the other side. You're always actually helping a person as opposed to it's kind of an abstract concept. So it, it's a, it's a, it's been a labor of love. I, I have no regrets about being such a specialist. One of the things I um, have always loved similarly around innovation around money is that you're always innovating towards something that helps people, right? Any innovation that's happening around your wallet is on the si- on the right side of the consumer, uh, ideally. And so I think that's how I fell down that rabbit hole. So just uh, last few quick questions here. As we think about your you know last call it 20 years of your career what was the one moment when you look back you were just like wow i can't believe that happened if you had to give me one cool moment that you just it really is a peak in your brain what is it there's been a lot it's actually um you can give us one or two do do you want like the uh oh my god we almost died or the wow that was amazing both tell us both 
I'll give you one of each. So, so during PayPal, we had this massive, massive fraud attack where these, uh, you know, presumably uh, Eastern European criminals, because they're always Eastern European, <laughs> uh, in my in my mind, since I am one of those. In your mind, um, yes, exactly. <laughs> they, they were opening 30,000 accounts per day, and it was just one of these. And at some point it became a race where I would come up with, you know, I would permute the fields in the web form and I would put delays and do all these tricks. And for a day they would slow down and then they would eventually reverse engineer whatever it is I'd come up with. And the account opening craze would be in the end. I'd be like, oh my God, another 30,000 accounts and they're all fake. And now they're moving stolen credit cards around and it's a money laundering issue. And so it was just an absolute blur that lasted for like four months. And at some point, one of these characters figured out my email address and, was, and started taunting me. He sent me these emails about how uh, you can never stop me and uh, you are weak and I am strong and I will sign up for PayPal you know, as much as I want and there's nothing you can do about it. And it sort of became a personal thing where every day oh I would find an email God. from this guy. Anyway, and so I'm often referenced as the guy who built the first commercial implementation of CAPTCHA. The CAPTCHA, yeah. The motivation behind that was I literally walked out onto the engineering floor at PayPal's office at 1840 Embarcadero and said, can anyone think of a way to pose a problem that a human can solve instantaneously and a computer would have a very hard time with? Because this guy keeps on solving my challenges with code. And this engineer, David Gausbeck, who's now running his own very successful company, looked up and said, well, optical character recognition is pretty hard for computers and I can read. And I was like, oh my God, you're a genius. And I almost gave him a kiss, but instead I coded for the next 36 hours nonstop. And we rolled out what basically, so we had, we had no idea about the capture project, but it was happening concurrently at CMU. We rolled out that and the account creation craze, of course, stopped because now he had to go figure out how to solve uh, optical character recognition. and. It didn't happen for a day, and then for two days, and then for three days. And then on a fourth day, I got an email with two words, F you, from my nemesis. And I was like, I have won. I, you have been stopped. And this so that, is that was literally the most of, uh, ridiculous story as a fellow founder. When you have dark days, the fact that you had like a nemesis taunting you, but while also simultaneously clearly not letting you sleep or eat or relax because the problem was so big and so bad. That's yeah. wild, Max. That's crazy. It, it's, a, it's a completely crazy true story. The uh, when this happened, I was in such a bizarre mental state that um, I climbed the wall of my cubicle, which was fortunately sturdy enough to hold me up, and played "Ride of the Valkyries," the uh, music. If you've seen um, "Apocalypse Now," I think is where the opening credits go to that, and on a loop, and it's like we're at war, and I'm coming for this guy, and he's coming for me. Or so sort of this a is... thing was, was happening in my head. Anyway, so so that was That's probably wild. That you know, was a stressful one. kind of a story there. You know, the funny thing is that every startup has an abundance of these and they're only funny in retrospect. When when oh, you're yeah. there in the middle of it, you're like bullets are flying and you know, not everybody's gonna come back. Yeah, no, I. that's why I like to say all of the, these wrinkles were earned <laughs> on the other side. I love it. So just, uh, I'll say last thing here, Max, I know you love helping other entrepreneurs, uh, and I've heard your great quote about you know people should never celebrate a fundraise because all you've done is raise the bar for your own uh, results. But 
if you had to pay it forward to another entrepreneur, look back at that young Max who drove across the country in a truck, um, what would you just say is the one or two pieces of advice that have been the things that have been most important to you that you think are vital as, a, as an entrepreneur? There's a good quote from another fine movie called Ronin. Whenever there's doubt, there's no doubt. That has been very true in my career. Anytime you're having second thoughts about something, 99 out of 100 times you've already decided you're just letting yourself waffle and you shouldn't. In my, certainly in my case, if, if I've ever been correctly accused of something, it's overanalysis. Analysis paralysis is a real thing. Be decisive. Every day I wake up in the morning, I tell myself today we're going to be more decisive than yesterday. What's your Myers-Briggs? Do you know your Myers-Briggs? Of course, INTJ. That's great. <laughs> I could have guessed that. Actually, I think Nathan, one of my firm co-founders, made a whole – he was obsessed with Myers-Briggs. And so many, many years ago, during PayPal, he made a bunch of us take Myers-Briggs. And, of course, it turned out that he and all of his friends were INTJs. So uh, anyway, that's a, that's a random story. But uh, I probably the most kind of a dark but really valid founder advice that I have never had to live but have seen as an investor, which is something that I hear very often now, especially as a sort of this growth of um, various accelerators and incubators is, is all around us. You can't hire a co-founder. This is a little bit more subtle, I think, than kind of the usual, you know, be decisive and you know, do smart things. Co-foundership is a little bit like marriage. You know, you don't have to love your co-founder, but you're going to be in situations when your relationship is going to be truly challenged. And at the very bottom of that foundation, you want mutual admiration that borders on feelings as opposed to cold, hard cash or I give you this much equity so you listen to me like it, it ultimately has to be a true partnership you know it doesn't matter what your equity distribution is it doesn't matter sort of you know all, all those things are secondary the the true depth of respect in the relationship has to be real because when it gets challenged for real the company blows up and nothing destroys companies like founder dispute or founder divorce and so i think that's one of these things where if you want to get an insurance policy on resilience of your company Make sure your relationship with your co-founder is ironclad, nothing less. I think that's fantastic advice. Um, Max, thank you so much for joining us today. For everybody that's listening, if you want to learn more about Affirm, just go to www.affirm.com and join us for next week's Inc. the Founders Project with Alexa Von Tobel. Thank you all for listening. You can subscribe to Inc. the Founders Project with Alexa Von Tobel wherever your podcasts are offered.